Good afternoon. Today we're talking about construction defense in New York workers' compensation cases, and in particular, where you also have a civil action pending. So we're calling that multi-jurisdictional cases. You've got a civil action pending and a workers' comp case, and your job, claims professional, attorney, adjuster, is to manage those two things. So let's jump in. Uh, in today's chat, I have placed in uh, a copy of my partner, Tashia Razul's Construction Defense Handbook, and that is currently in your chat. But if you're watching this recorded, and it does seem like most people are watching these uh, in our archive section on our website, you're watching the videos back, you're looking in there, you're finding the right topic, uh, well, the handouts that come in these live webinars are not uh, embedded in there. So just shoot me a quick email and I will send you off a copy of my partner's handbook. Her handbook is soup to nuts. Uh, it is really very comprehensive. And we're just going to really talk about the reasons why you want to think differently about your construction cases where there are multiple claims going in multiple jurisdictions. She lays out in her book a real soup to nuts beginning to end, uh, everything from setting up the insurance program uh, to the way defense is coordinated between multiple jurisdictions very uh, in-depth with chapters, for example, on things like maintaining and protecting privileges uh, and coordinating strategy, and of course, trying to reach the goal, which is a global resolution. So uh, take a look at her handbook, and again, my partner, Tashia, she's really the expert on this topic. So today, I'm just gonna give you an introduction to it uh, and sort of talk about what we're thinking about when we have a multi-jurisdictional construction accident in New York. And a lot of this is gonna be applicable and it's going to apply to any cases where there's also a civil action pending, right? Because we're gonna be talking about how things that you do or the way you defend the workers' compensation case may have an impact on the uh, civil litigation and vice versa. So these are things that we wanna keep in mind uh, as uh, representing clients or representing insureds, uh, depending on which seat you're in. So. Here's what I'm gonna talk about today. Uh, first, I'm gonna talk a little bit about why coordinate and what are the benefits of coordinating counsel between your multiple jurisdictions. I have to talk about tactics a little bit. I'm gonna talk about tactics that benefit the employer and why coordination is important and can be a huge benefit for the employer or carrier. I'm gonna talk about um, reducing litigation costs and putting those litigation costs in the right place. Remember, you're, def you're defending cases involving the same claimant, the same fact pattern, the same injuries, and you're defending them in two different courts. So I wanna to talk to everyone about where those uh, defense costs should probably best be allocated and why you might wanna have workers' comp defense do certain things and uh, civil defense do other things. Um, I wanna talk about the challenge of collateral estoppel, and for us this can be a challenge, can be a problem. Collateral estoppel is a legal term, which means essentially, What's been determined in one jurisdiction or one litigation may have an impact, a preclusionary impact, in the other jurisdiction. So we're gonna talk briefly about that. And of course, we're gonna talk about our goal. And our goal here is to reach a global settlement, a one settlement that hopefully wraps up all of the employer or the insured's exposure in multiple jurisdictions. How we structure that and how that's done. Finally, this is totally live, so please feel free to ask questions. There is a question box. Uh, if you're joining us live, please type in your questions. If you're watching this back on video replay, uh, of course, feel free to email us or call us with your questions. And call me or call my partner, Tashia, who's really the expert on this. Um, 
So the big question is why do we care about multi-jurisdictional coordination or, or why is this a good use of our time, energy, blood, and treasure? And there's really three things I want to talk about. The first is the three C's. You're thinking about when, I, when I, we're looking typically at a construction case uh, where there is going to be uh, a significant civil action pending, typically under New York's labor law. Uh, we're thinking this is a, probably going to be a pretty big accident, pretty big injury. It's going to be extremely costly. So there's a lot of cost that's going to be driven by these cases. Remember, New York has a crazy, a kooky system uh, for uh, allocating uh, liability in a workplace accident involving construction accidents. Under the labor law, there's strict liability should the employer have a defect or a dangerous condition. And under the Scaffold Act, there's going to be strict liability for injuries or um, accidents involving a fall from a height. And remember, your claimant doesn't actually have to fall from a height. Just a tool or some um, part of the workplace, maybe a piece of debris falls from a height. Also, falling into a hole has been determined to be a fall from a height. Uh, or stepping into a depression and twisting your ankle, uh, which again is going to engender strict liability for the landowner or the project owner or the general contractor. And so for all those reasons, you're going to really see some big exposures in these cases. And maybe not in the workers' compensation context, but certainly in the civil context where you're going to see uh, a jury come back and maybe award two or three million dollars for a relatively minor injury, I'm thinking about things like a an ankle fracture or wrist injury, uh, which in the workers' compensation context would be worth uh, maybe a tenth of that. Okay. Uh, the next thing is there are two different claims pending in two different courts, right? Uh, generally speaking, you're going to see that claimants' attorneys are not going to be the same attorneys that are representing the plaintiff in the civil action. So they're generally going to have two sets of attorneys. And generally, that's what you're going to see uh, from the defense context as well. But you got to be mindful of what's happening in the other jurisdiction or the other court because it could have an impact on your case. I'm going to talk about collateral estoppel in a, in a second. So what we've offered clients and what's really in the, in the heart of my partner's book is really more of a protocol for how you coordinate defense where you've got this huge catastrophic loss and with a lot of exposure and liability, we're talking about in the millions in the civil action, and a workers' compensation loss with attendant workers' compensation exposures. And you know these things are going to happen, and you know you're going to have the challenge of coordinating counsel between these two uh, different worlds. And so really what my partner has written is a protocol for how we think this should be best to be done. So let's talk a little about tactics. Just remember that there's going to be a lot of difference in litigation pacing. The workers' compensation case is going to move pretty fast, right? And also remember, of course, our opponent is going to be using the workers' compensation case to fund and fuel their civil action. What do I mean by that? Well, they're entitled to unlimited medical treatment in the workers' compensation case. So you'll see them uh, seeking all sorts of um, maybe unnecessary or certainly uh, sometimes uh, not so effective or curative surgeries, treatments, extra physical therapy, anything they can get because that attorney in the, in, the, in the civil action knows, hey, when they go into civil court and they stand in front of the jury, they want to have a big board. 
And on that big board, they want to have all their specials listed, meaning all of their damages. And they want to show how much money was spent on medical. And they want to have a big number up there that impresses juries and have them come back with a bigger number, right? So the first one is think about the difference in that litigation penny, because I'm telling you, your opposing counsel definitely is. Opposing counsel, again, they want to use the uh, uh, slowness of the civil system uh, and, and the speediness of the workers' comp system, if you can call it that, and get as much medical treatment and money paid through the workers' compensation system as a way of funding and beefing up uh, their civil claim. And, and again, just remember, the more treatment the person gets, the more surgeries, the more invasive care, uh, they're going to argue, the more valuable their civil action is. So that difference in pacing, you'll typically see the, the comp case moving first, moving faster. So that's the thing we're paying attention to. But we have to keep in mind that there's also a civil action pending, even if it's moving quite slowly. So uh, pacing is the first thing. The second thing is what about disclosure rules? There are differences between the two jurisdictions, right? Here's a powerful uh, difference and so, something we have to keep our focus on. That is that in a workers' compensation case, if I have covert surveillance or even non-covert uh, information that I want to bring in to challenge the claimant's credibility, Think of things like Facebook posts or Instagram posts. Uh, think of things like covert surveillance that would maybe be obtained uh, through the use of an investigator. All of those things come into a workers' compensation case, and I can test a claimant's credibility without revealing or disclosing in advance what I have. In the workers' compensation context, remember that the claimant has to come in and testify, and then we turn over the results of our credibility investigation. That's pretty powerful, and you really don't want to disclose to the claimant exactly what you have, uh, perhaps either covert or non-covert surveillance before they testify. Well, those rules are different in the civil context. In the civil context, when the parties have video or covert surveillance, they have a disclosure duty to reveal uh, the contents of that to the claimant, and that can really screw up the case, particularly uh, if on the one side of the house, your civil side of the house, they're disclosing things that we would rather keep in our back pocket and because we believe they have surprise value in the workers' compensation case. So coordinating who's disclosing what and which side of the house, for example, is conducting that covert investigation into the claimant, that's very important and that's a, a tactic that we should be um, thinking about. Next, uh, remember that opposing counsel in your civil action probably doesn't have much knowledge of how workers' comp works. Right, And you'll see this, it's an interesting thing, particularly in New York, where the attorneys that represent claimants in workers' compensation matters rarely, if ever, are also handling the plaintiff's action in the civil court. In fact, I can only think of two law firms. Uh, one is um, the, the Schwarzkopf law firm, and one is Slavik Plata's law firm, which focus on a lot of construction accidents and construction claims that also that do both sides of the house, right? They're going to do, they're going to handle the workers' compensation case and they're going to bring the civil action. But that's really the exception. Uh, the what we really see more typically is it's two different sets of attorneys. And think about the motivations and uh, the coordination between them. Generally speaking, we don't see much, right? The workers' compensation attorney is handling 10,000 cases on the claimant side. They don't know any much particularly about any one. Uh, and they are really just trying to maximize their claimant's benefit or, uh, you know, uh, uh, payments or indemnity uh, in the workers' comp case. That's all they care about, really, because that's what their fee is based on. In the civil action, they've got a completely different motivation. They really want to see uh, a long, big buildup. They want a lot of lost time. They want a lot of 
curative care. Uh, they want to be able to demonstrate a lot of specials on the board when they go into uh, talk to the jury. So they might not be as coordinated as they should be, and that's an interesting thought. The other thought I have for you is that, generally speaking, the plaintiff's attorneys representing uh, the plaintiffs in civil actions really don't understand how workers' compensation works and oftentimes uh, really don't have a good um, grounding in what are the basic benefits and how the benefits work. And even things like how their lien is going to be con uh, 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 calculated is something that they might not be aware of. So our tactics are always going to be to try to create as much jeopardy as possible. And creating jeopardy in the workers' compensation case, knowing that the testimony is going to move faster, knowing that the case is going to move faster, what can we do in that workers' compensation case that will help disrupt or maybe reduce the exposure in the civil action, right? Also, knowing about the difference between deadlines and timelines, you know, a lot of our clients where we're representing them uh, in the workers' compensation action and there's going to be a attendant civil action under the Labor Law Scaffold Act are public entities, right? They're doing large capital projects. And they're entitled in the civil action uh, to a 50-H hearing, uh, which is a hearing uh, that it happens early in a uh, civil litigation involving a public entity, which means we might get multiple bites at the apple at the claimant's testimony. And for that reason, you know, being cognizant of that and having um, the workers' compensation attorney uh, and the defense counsel that are going to conduct that 50-H hearing, communicating and coordinating early can be a really important tactic. So uh, how can we save some money? And, and I want to talk especially in the cost, uh, in the context of a wrap-up or an owner-controlled insurance program policy. Uh, let's talk about that. So the first thing is, hey, let's try to reduce litigation costs. Let's have litigation costs done where they can best be done, right? We, I'm going to tell you right now that the workers' compensation case is often going to move a lot faster than the civil action. And generally speaking, you're going to have your civil litigator go out to the scene and do their first investigation, probably even earlier or at the same time you're bringing in workers' compensation counsel. So that's something to be mindful about. The second thing is I want us to avoid duplicative efforts, right? Uh, we might both be uh, cross-examining the same physicians. Uh, I want to coordinate that. Right? Uh, why are, are multiple attorneys subpoenaing the same documents, particularly if we're going to be utilizing them at the same time or in the same way? Maybe an unnecessary or duplicative effort. Uh, the last thing I'm going to say is, you know, again, we already talked about how the discovery and the privileges and the disclosure rules are going to be different in both jurisdictions. Keep in mind that what goes into my New York workers' compensation defense file is almost never discoverable in my workers' compensation proceeding. So it's really a good idea to really be mindful about, hey, where do I want this investigation to take place? Which side of the house do I want to do it on? In general, we're going to tell you uh, for most of the covert and uh, non-covert surveillance and investigation, the workers' compensation uh, side of the house is probably the place to do that. Uh, and you'll have the most uh, latitude later with how that disclosure or that in information or evidence gets introduced into your civil action. Now. Uh, let's talk a little bit about a subject that I've kind of um, sort of peeked in on or just, you know, sort of touched on so far, which is collateral estoppel. And collateral estoppel is a legal principle. I think it's some kind of fancy term. Uh, and really all it means is, hey, once something that has been decided in a litigation, um, you know, it can, you, that issue is then precluded by, from being further litigated or further developed later on. 
And really the idea is to try to conserve judicial resources. And once there's been a judicial decision in a case on a specific topic, well, that's the law of the case uh, until the end of the case, right? I mean, that, that sort of makes sense. This gets complicated when you've got multiple cases going in multiple jurisdictions. And you want to be very thoughtful about decisions or determinations being reached in the workers' compensation case, because generally they're going to be reached there first, and what kind of impact that's going to have on the civil action, right? Certain things you're going to either want to have decided in the workers' comp case or not, right? Uh, so let's talk about something. Um, how about um, you can use the findings uh, in that comp action as a way of maybe limiting or foreclosing those same issues in the civil action. So a great example of this would be, hey, we've litigated the issue fully in workers' compensation court, and we've got a specific body part or condition disallowed in the workers' compensation case. Uh, you can argue in your civil action that judge that ankle or that shoulder or that psychiatric disorder, that's no longer part of the case. In fact, there was already litigation on that topic earlier, and here's the result of that, right? So you can try to rely on that to sort of push. Findings by a workers' compensation judge can be binding in the civil action uh, as long as they're um, considering the same sort of um, either facts or material circumstances in reaching that determination. So again, you know, uh, think about workers' compensation driving the bus and helping you limit the number of issues or maybe limit the number of claims that the plaintiff can bring in the civil action. So that's very, very powerful. Um, What's the goal of what we're doing here, by the way? It's full and final settlement of both claims in both jurisdictions, right? It's closing out exposure at the same time if we can, and maybe leveraging one case, usually the workers' compensation case, against the other. Remember that under Section 29 of the workers' compensation law, we would be entitled, the employer or the uh, ultimate employer would be entitled to 100% reimbursement for any amounts paid in the workers' compensation case, and again, that could be medical, and indemnity, permanent residual disability, anything, from the proceeds of the civil action with just one caveat or one subtraction, which is the cost of that litigation, right? So that whatever uh, attorney's fee or cost and things like expert fees or filing fees would be deducted that. Well, that's important, really, because that means uh, that everything that's going to be resolved in the workers' compensation case really serves as a subtraction from whatever the claimant is going to get in the in the civil action. In other words, it's not additive. The, the most they can get is whatever they get in the civil action generally, which is going to be a lot higher once they get in the workers' compensation case. So that's an important moment to turn around and say, hey, you're going to get $2 million in your civil action. You've, you know, we've had uh, $500,000 of exposure or payment in the workers' comp matter. We would normally be entitled to, I'm just using round numbers here and imagining the attorney's cost of litigation is 30% in the civil action. Hey, we'd normally be entitled to $275,000 or $300,000 worth of reimbursement in the workers' compensation case. However, maybe we will waive some of that reimbursement uh, in consideration for resolving the cases together, right? So we're going to try to use one as leverage against the other. Um, and, you know, in that way, try to obtain a global or a, a total resolution of both cases. And that's really our, our goal, right? The goal here is to both reduce litigation costs as you're proceeding through the case, and that would be by coordinating counsel in each jurisdiction. The second goal would be to use strategic, uh, strategic use of collateral estoppel to try to knock body parts or conditions out of the case so they don't end up going on to the big board in the civil action. And the last thing is just thinking holistically, let's move to a global settlement. 
You know, the other thought we, I think that we've done here is a no money moving section 32 in a worker's compensation case. And in that case, we're saying essentially the proceeds that you're getting from the civil action, we're going to waive our section 29 lien. And in that way, also the worker's compensation case gets settled. Another thing to be thoughtful about is, in general, uh, workers' compensation attorneys are not uh, taking fees or getting fees for putting together Medicare set-asides. However, in the civil world, that is a typical thing we see plaintiff's attorneys asking for, a fee on the amount of money put into a Medicare set-aside. Well, if you're doing a, uh, some basic uh, global resolution planning or strategy, you know, sitting there and saying, well, hey, I want to put the Medicare secondary payer allocation, whether that's a set-aside or some other uh, technique, into the workers' compensation case so that I don't have to pay attorney's fees on that in the civil action. I mean, there are just a lot of tactics and strategies that we want to employ uh, so that we overall reduce our exposure. All right. Uh, I hope I've touched on enough topics to um, get the juices flowing and get a couple questions going. I'm going to come over here now and open up the questions dashboard and see if I've got any. Okay, Mia said, is there something uh, that's uh, being shown on the screen? Mia, I hope you've been able to see me. I look very nice today. I'm wearing a spring uh, yellow tie. I hope you've been able to observe, but if not, uh, sorry that there's a problem. And Lisa asked the question, hey, Greg, is there specific case law to be referenced when using workers' comp decisions to benefit GL outcomes? Yeah, check out my um, partner's book. I put it into the chat. Uh, there is a lot of information in there that you can pull out, but the case law that stands for the proposition that the determination in a workers' compensation court can serve to preclude or collaterally stop the same issue in the workers' comp in the sorry in the civil action uh, is certainly in there. So there's lots of references. And again, if you are facing that in your case, you know, feel free to reach out to us because there certainly is case law that stands for that proposition. All right, aside from Mia and Lisa, I don't see any other questions, so uh, thanks for joining us today. This was a fun topic to put together. Again, I'm not the expert on it. That would be my uh, partner, Tashia, who runs our complex claims practice here, which primarily coordinates the work uh, between civil matters and workers' compensation actions, uh, and primarily in construction cases. But I hope you realize that a lot of what we talked about today is applicable in any circumstance where the same employer, project owner, or, uh, or uh, premises owner is being sued in two different contexts. So uh, thanks for joining me today. I hope everyone has a great rest of your week, and I'll see you next time.